0: to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine and I'm here again with my co-host Reese. Uh, We are recording this on Saturday, December 2nd. You're listening to it for the first time on Sunday, December the 3rd. And again, there will be a rebroadcast on December the 4th. Uh, How are you doing, Reese? I'm hanging
1: in here. I know that's what you normally say. It's uh, it's been a week, you know, I was a little under the weather for a while. So just trying to be well today on this lovely Saturday. How are you?
0: I too am hanging in there. Um, Can't complain too badly, just taking it easy for the weekend. Um, And happy to be back recording and we took a week off. So we're here, it's almost the end of the year, and um, I wanted to acknowledge that yesterday, dis- well, the day before we're recording, was December 1st, which was World AIDS Day. Uh, so we'll be playing a couple of songs uh, from artists who have passed away uh, due to complications from AIDS. Um, but for our, other, for our news stories, for local news, uh, we'll be talking about congestion pricing that's coming to New York City. For national news, we'll be discussing um, a a little bit of a concerning story about a federal funding initiative uh, regarding uh, AIDS and HIV treatment and prevention that seems to be um, in trouble right now. And for our world news story, we'll be talking about Russia outlawing uh, the LGBTQ movement um, and what that could potentially mean uh, for activists there and people living there. And for our good news story, we have another local story about uh, minimum wages for delivery workers. Uh, So Reese, could you go ahead and get started with our local news story?
1: Sure. So this um, story here comes from an article in the New York Times. The title of the article is Congestion Pricing Is Coming, Its Opponents Are Still Furious. Commuters worry their drives into lower Manhattan will cost more. Residents fear their neighborhoods will be swarmed by new traffic, taxi drivers are terrified of losing more customers. For years, the same complaints have followed officials on a long road to the nation's first congestion pricing plan, which will, change drivers, which will charge drivers a toll for entering much of Manhattan below 60th Street. Now as the plan moves closer to becoming reality, officials hope New Yorkers will be won over once they see it in action. The benefits proponents say are obvious: reduced traffic and pollution and eventually a better transit system. But some critics still question who will directly benefit most and who might be harmed. New Jersey officials accuse New York of overburdening its residents with new tolls. Some activists say rerouted truck traffic would worsen asthma rates in the Bronx that are already high. And the Staten Island Borough President, Vito J. Fosella cited research from the Metropolitan Transportation Authority which suggests that parts of the borough could get more vehicles because drivers might travel around the tolling zone this is a three strike loser for the people of Staten Island Mr. Fasella said air pollution will get worse on Staten Island traffic will also get worse in a report released on Thursday an advisory panel to the MTA presented its final recommendations It called for cars to pay $15 to enter Manhattan below 60th Street once per per day. Commercial trucks would pay as much as $36, taxis would add $1.25 per fare, and ride-hail apps like Uber and Lyft would track on an extra $2.50 per ride. According to the plan, low-income drivers will get 50% off tolls during the day after the first 10 trips in a calendar month. The vast majority of commuters who drive into Manhattan are not low-income, according to a 2022 study by the Community Service Society of New York, an anti-poverty group. The authority, the state agency that runs New York City subways and buses, would oversee the tolling program, which could begin as soon as next spring. The race proposed this week will be subject to public hearings before the final vote, which can happen early next year. Congestion pricing could also drive up the authority's debt, while the program will provide crucial funding for improvements to the transit network. A May 2023 report from Thomas D. Napoli, the State Comptroller, notes that much of the funding is projected to come from leveraging bonds that would drive the authority's debt up to $56.7 billion by 2028. Some experts worry that traffic diverted by the tolls could create a new chokehold outside the zone. Um, I can stop there. There's a couple more um, paragraphs here to talk about specific people in the city and their reactions to it, but I just definitely want to get your input. I know, you know, obviously in New York, um, taking public transit is like the way to be, but you know, these numbers are kind of crazy, like $15 a day if you own a car and then $36 for commercial vehicles. So just kind of thinking about like what that even looks like and how long it will take for, New York City to really feel if this thing really helped, you know, with the with the traffic and also um, improving transit, which is no guarantee.
0: Yeah, like this actually came up, I was talking about it with a relative of mine who works uh, for the city and in the city and also as a driver. And I don't think, um, I think I saw a Gothamist headline talking about how Even if you are a city worker, you're not going to be exempt from this. You're going to have to pay the same as everyone else, which I thought was kind of wild. Um, But on the one hand, you know, I am someone who's a big advocate, well, a proponent of uh, public transportation. And I think especially with, you know, what we know about fossil fuels, global warming, like environmental degradation, this over-reliance on everyone having to have a car and driving everywhere it's not good for the planet it's not good for the region that being said like you have to make bigger changes in order to address that and this just seems kind of like throwing a band-aid on this on a problem but it's creating other issues like they I, i like that the article brought up how people are just going to drive into different areas to avoid the toll. So you're just going to have a lot more pollution in certain areas. Like, so you're just kind of offsetting it instead of eliminating it. And like, I don't know if the goal is to kind of incentivize people. It, It seems like it's trying to disincentivize people from driving into the city I guess ostensibly to try to get them to use public transportation. But if you're going to do that, then you have to make sure that your public transportation system is worthwhile and is able to get people where they need to go when they need to be there in lieu right. of taking a car. And I don't really see that happening. You exactly.
1: Know? Um, sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say like, you know, I haven't lived there in a while, but even the times I visit, you know, it's still a lot of people that take the train, and that doesn't mean that it's going to make service better or anything, if, if anything, it's going to make the trains even worse. Um, and we haven't seen any real improvements on the MTA in how long now? I mean, I know they have those new machines now for you to get your little transit pass. I've seen somebody post, like, a, a video about that or whatever, but that doesn't improve the service or the cars, the cleanliness, um, anything about the stations. I don't know. I'm, I'm not there now, but that was my experience. So I don't know how to, you know, what what they're expecting if they think people just going to like everything's just going to mesh out the way it's supposed to if they don't plan any real, you know, updates at MTA.
0: Yeah, I mean, these things have to be, you know, whenever you're talking about these big problems, like, you know, it's, it's damn near 60 degrees and it's December. Like, obviously, the way that we are living, especially in the global north countries, like in the U.S. and Canada and a lot of parts of Europe and all of that it's driving climate change, it's driving climate disasters, and this reliance on burning fossil fuels just to get anywhere is a big part of that. So yes, that's true, that's a problem. But you can't just say, oh, like, let's just make it difficult or more expensive in this one area, and that's gonna solve it. Like, that's not, there's a much bigger picture of what you need to do to, like, change the infrastructure and the way people are able to get around and this just seems like it's it's a small piece of a much bigger problem that's just gonna like drive anger and resentment I feel and also where would the money be going like that they're paying this is that money gonna be put into public transportation is can that offset the three dollars you gotta pay each way just to get somewhere on the train or on a bus
1: not necessarily the article talks about how making this move is actually going to put the MTA into like bigger debt um, i'm i'm assuming because they have to make you know collection stations and service oriented to you know make this whole plan happen but it does it doesn't sound like that's what you know what they're going to do with the money that's not clear from the article so
0: yeah, it seems like it, it's a lot more questions than answers, you know, because like I, I'm all for having there be less traffic, less car traffic, less reliance on driving. And I like living in New York City for one of that reason, because I don't I have a license, but I'm not someone who drives. I don't like to drive. So, you know, it's good to have things be more like walkable or like it's livable without you having to have a car bill and like a gas bill and all of this. But you also, like, practically, if people aren't going to drive, how are they going to get where they need to go? Like, you have to be able to answer that question in a way that's reasonable if you want to see any type of progress. Or, you know, I guess come up with a way that people can drive that it's not going to cause pollution. I don't know. But, you know, especially that comment about driving up issues like in the Bronx, like there's already disadvantaged places feeling the brunt of this issue as it is. And it seems like it's just going to get worse.
1: Yeah. Especially the people who live within those zones, you know, like the ones who actually live in in that block in those blocks, you know, who have, who it's, it's a mixed bag, right? They got to pay to come in and out of their neighborhood, if you will, if they have to leave. Then on top of that, there are people who are coming in and out so freely that's making their regular commute in their neighborhoods or whatever, you know um crazy because of the traffic so it's it's like so many layers to this it, it's not a one-way way to do this i really hope that they the money they collect from this is used to improve public transit by any means necessary um but yeah it's just you know it's going to be kind of crazy like this whole, the whole energy of new york i think will change a little bit from this you know um i didn't drive while i was there but obviously I'm i'm a driver so i can see You know, I've never heard of congestion pricing really helping the situation. I guess over time you will see the difference um, in the reduction in the, you know, pollution in the environment and less traffic. But it it does take some time to adjust to that, you know, what's to account for that time, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's like any issue, it's more complicated than just one aspect of it. Like, you can't just make one thing more expensive and think, great, we fixed it. Like, there's got to be way more people involved in the decision and a lot of other changes that need to happen for this to even make sense.
1: And also, like, a slower progress on how you make this happen. You know, I feel like the number, the rates are, like, super high, um, considering the state of the economy right now for people um i don't know how they got to that number
0: but yeah it you know is think high. About that for like a
1: week. you know what i mean think about that for like a week that's a whole nother
0: fucking bill that you gotta pay it's a big that, that's a lot of money yeah it's each a way
1: one per week you know that's kind of crazy 15 dollars a day
0: yeah i mean
1: it can add up you know
0: most definitely all right so i guess you know we shall see what happens with this story uh so thanks for that local news story reese You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, this is The Bottle by Gil Scott-Heron. We'll be right back.
1: Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open
0: platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you.
1: Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate.
0: Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our national news story, uh, this information comes from The Guardian. Uh, the article was written by Nora Neus and Tyler Albertario. Uh, the title of the article is A Moment to Fight Again, U.S. Activists Warn of Backsliding on World AIDS Day. Um, And as I mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, this year is the 35th annual uh, observation of World AIDS Day. The first one was on December the 1st, 1988. And this is most of the article, but I did cut some things for the sake of time. But uh, as always, you're free to read the full thing on your own. Uh, So this year, on the 35th anniversary of World AIDS Day, activists shared their concerns about how the disease has been discussed in recent years. We want to make sure that as part of World AIDS Day that people understand that this isn't just a moment for us to come and reflect. It's actually a moment for us to come and fight again because unfortunately we are facing existential threats due to just the ongoing dysfunction and most extreme viewpoints of conservatives in the House, said Jeremiah Johnson, the executive director of Prep for All, an AIDS prevention and treatment organization. Kevin Robert Frost, the chief executive officer of the Foundation for AIDS Research, or AMFAR, one of the world's leading AIDS research organizations, says, funding to treat and prevent this disease has become a political football in Washington. Frost pointed to this year's fight to reauthorize the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, a bipartisan international program first authorized by President George W. Bush in 2003. The program is widely acknowledged as having saved millions of lives across the world in the two decades since its inception by providing people in developing countries with free access to effective HIV and AIDS treatment drugs. Earlier this year, the reauthorization of PEPFAR was caught up in the national debates about abortion despite U.S. laws preventing any money under PEPFAR from going toward abortions. Frost added that, as a result of that, it wasn't reauthorized by Congress for the first time and noted that there was tremendous concern about what that's going to do globally and for America's leadership role in the global fight against HIV and AIDS. Now, we're even seeing at the domestic level that there's fights around cutting funding for HIV, for treatment, and for prevention, he said. Johnson, of prep for all also points to government funding shortfalls as a consequence. He noted that House appropriators led by House conservatives proposed $767 million in cuts to HIV funding for fiscal year 2024 and said, unfortunately, not enough people know about that. In particular, we need to make sure that everyone is contacting their representatives to let them know that we need to save HIV funding and reject those proposed cuts," he said. Another domestic effort is a coordinated attempt to expand access to pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP drugs to prevent the spread of HIV. So if you're not aware, uh, something that's a prophylactic means before you're exposed to something like it, it's preventative. So, you know, these are very powerful, like game changing treatments that, you know, people can take on a regular basis to prevent themselves from becoming infected with HIV. We are really in a time right now with PrEP access, we're seeing maybe 78% of white individuals who are most in need of getting access, getting it. Only 11% of black individuals and only 21% of Latinx individuals, said Johnson. So we're in a situation where if we don't sort of have a cognizance about where we're at in the movement right now, We could end HIV as an epidemic for white people in America but never end it for communities of color, never end it for trans communities, for cisgender women, never end it for global communities. The AIDS epidemic is not over until it's over for everyone," said Jason Rosenberg, the communications manager for AVAC, a leading HIV prevention global nonprofit. At least in the U.S., we're advocating for a national PrEP plan that could revolutionize how we see prevention, whether it be oral PrEP, injectable PrEP, which is now on the market but is kind of hard to come by because of insurance barriers. Um, So that's the end of what I'm going to read uh, from that article. Uh, Again, that was written in The Guardian. Uh, and just, you know, because you just never know who's listening and who may may know or may not know certain things. Uh, this is from the World Health Organization, uh, simple definitions of what HIV and AIDS are. Human immunodeficiency virus is an infection that attacks the body's immune system. Acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or AIDS, is the most advanced stage of the disease. HIV targets the body's white blood cells, weakening the immune system. This makes it easier to get sick with diseases like tuberculosis, infections, and some cancers. HIV is spread from the body fluids of an infected person, including blood, breast milk, semen, and vaginal fluids. It is not spread by kisses, hugs, or sharing food. It can also spread from a mother to her baby. HIV can be treated and prevented with antiretroviral therapy, or ART. Untreated HIV can progress to AIDS. Pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, is medicine taken to prevent getting HIV. PrEP is highly effective for preventing HIV when taken as prescribed. PEP or PEP is the use of antiretroviral drugs after a single high-risk event to stop HIV seroconversion so that would prevent a person who's been exposed from their body producing HIV antibodies which is when you would test positive when those antibodies are detected in your blood. PEP must be started as soon as possible to be effective and always within 72 hours of a possible exposure. Uh, And this is uh, some separate information from HIV.gov, specifically about HIV and AIDS um, and its impact on racial and ethnic minorities. While HIV can affect anyone regardless of your sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, gender, age, or where they live, In the United States, some racial and ethnic groups are more affected than others compared to their percentage of the population. This is because some population groups have higher rates of HIV in their communities, so that raises the risk of new infections with each sexual encounter or injection drug use encounter. Additionally, there's a range of social, economic, and demographic factors like stigma, discrimination, income, education, and geographic region that affect people's risk for HIV as well as their HIV-related outcomes. For example, in 2019, Black people represented 13% of the U.S. population, but 40% of people with HIV. Hispanics and Latinos represented 18.5% of the population, But 25% of people with HIV. Uh, So that's the end of um, what I wanted to share. Like, I think it should definitely be on everyone's radar that, you know, these are important programs that are at the risk of, you know, being put on the chopping block. Like, PEPFAR was the main focus for that article. Um, But even at the state level, uh, we're seeing a lot of attacks against public health in general, and funding and programs that are needed to combat the ongoing uh, HIV and AIDS pandemic are also an issue uh, that affects all of us.
1: Well, thanks. I haven't heard a kind of like complete over overtaking of just this conversation in so long. That's the, one of the things I was going to point out, like... I remember growing up, conversations around AIDS and HIV were definitely more um, normalized and we had more conversations about them, whereas today I really don't hear a lot or participate in uh, discussions about innovations on the disease or people living within it, advocacy against it, um, and solidarity with those who suffer from it. So, um, you know, on this day of the holiday, I definitely, and I, I call it a holiday because, you know, it's also the more we know about it, the more we, you know, um, kind of some sort of the lives lost because so many people had died from the b- disease before people really knew how to treat it, you know, and I um, just think it's important and significant to always have remembrance for people who suffer for something like this for so long and we just don't have enough attention to the disease or even, um, you know, talking about this. I know a couple of weeks ago we did a story about the rise of syphilis and things of that nature now, we have to keep having these conversations and also think about, you know, the other things that are plaguing this world at the same time as the stuff that's on the surface. So definitely important to consider um, everything that you talked about in this article and just kind of pay more attention to the conversations around this disease, the you know changes that have happened because of science and, um, you know, solidarity and help for people who are suffering from who have suffered from it for so long or who have passed away already as well.
0: Right. And it's, um I think it, it's great to acknowledge that things have come a long way. Like if you're talking about in the U.S. and a lot of other rich countries, and even in parts of um p- places that are in the global south, like through a lot of these programs that like PEPFAR helps to fund, there has been a big, a decrease in Um, just the number of people dying and like there has been progress in treatments and prevention and so on and those are all great things but I like that the article mentioned that don't lose sight of the fact that this is an ongoing issue and again that something like this is not over until it's over for everyone and that number of how 78% of white people who are at, at high risk for infection have access to PrEP and are using it and for the number to be so much lower uh, for black people it was like 11% of black people of black individuals who are yeah. at most need like that is drastic we're only 13% of the population but represent 40% of people living with HIV, that's more than three times our proportion in the population, you know, and I'm looking at Black because, you know, I am a Black person, Um, but you also see that disparity. Also, um, they mentioned uh, people who are in the Latinx community, they also are disproportionately affected, and there's other subgroups that you can break out and see that, yes, there's been a lot of progress, however... The same way it is for a lot of other issues it's like there's a whole lot of progress for certain groups of people Um, and on that topic I haven't read the full book myself um, but I've been listening to like interviews and reading articles that are about the book Um, it's by Stephen Thrasher and the title is The Viral Underclass Um, so I would recommend looking into that book and also you know interviews with him podcasts that are referring the the to the book um because it it seems to do like a deep dive into the ways that you know there's certain groups of people where it seems like it's considered acceptable that they continue to have like a high burden of disease or a viral exposure and it's like as long as it's happening within certain subgroups of the community it's not taken as seriously or seen as something that needs to be urgently addressed Um, and it does talk about that specifically you know in reference to hiv and aids and it seems as though you know that's an accurate portrayal of where we're at now you know it, it seems like it's kind of off the radar for a lot of people that might be middle class upper class you know white they're not minorities or whatever that doesn't mean that it's not a problem and it's something that you know we all need to continue to take seriously There's also big disparities within the country as far as where infections take place and most of them are taking place in the South. We know that there's a lot of issues with um, people not receiving accurate and complete like sexual education or support when it comes to you know what's going on with drug use and intravenous drug use and that ignorance and that stigma and keeping people in the dark it's deadly it's it's like a double-edged sword. Like, it's great to have the progress, but I think sometimes people can be lulled into a false sense of security with the progress that's been made, and they're not paying as much attention to the ways that we're kind of going backwards. Um, and the fact that it's been 20 years, and this PEPFAR program has been ongoing, and this is the first time that it hasn't been re-upped like that's very alarming especially considering like all the other things that are we've talked on the show tb syphilis gonorrhea all these other things are popping off right now like and this seems to be one other thing that you know where we've come far but not as far as we need to come with this absolutely all right so um For our next musical break, this is a song that was requested. I'm taking requests from my family. Uh, This song is Love is the Message, and it is by MFSB, or Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, featuring The Three Degrees. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Reese with our world news story.
1: All right, this article is from NPR. Um, the title is, Russia's Supreme Court Effectively Outlaws LGBTQ Plus Activism in a Landmarked Ruling. Russia's Supreme Court Effectively Outlawed LGBTQ Plus Activism on Thursday, the most drastic step against advocates of gay, lesbian, and transgender rights in an increasingly conservative country. Ruling in response to a lawsuit filed by the Justice Ministry, the court labeled what the suit called the LGBTQ plus movement operated in Russia as an extremist organization and banned it. The ruling is the latest step in a decade-long crackdown on LGBTQ plus rights in Russia under President Vladimir Putin, who has emphasized traditional family values during his 24 years in power. Thursday's closed-door hearing lasted four hours. No one besides justice ministry representatives were allowed in, and there is no defendant. Journalists were taken into a courtroom only for the reading of the verdict by Judge Oleg Nefdov, who wore a face mask, apparently, for health reasons. The case was classified, and the ministry didn't disclose any evidence, saying only that authorities had identified signs and manifestations of an extremist nature in the movement it seeks to ban, including incitement of social and religious discord. Multiple rights activists have noted the lawsuit was lodged against a movement that is not an official entity and that under its broad and vague definition, Russian authorities could crack down on any individual or group deemed to be a part of it. In practice, it could happen that Russian authorities, with this court ruling in hand, will enforce the ruling against LGBT plus initiatives that work in Russia, considering them a part of a civic movement, said Max Olenchev, a human rights lawyer who works with the Russian LGBT plus community contacted by the Associated Press before the ruling. The lawsuit targets activists and effectively prohibits any organized activity to defend the rights of LGBTQ plus people, Olinchev added. Multiple Russian independent media outlets and rights groups added rainbow symbols to their logos on social media in solidarity with the LGBTQ plus community. This is a political order and they are following it. Amnesty International called the ruling shameful and absurd, warning it could lead to a blanket ban on LGBTQ plus organizations, violate freedom of association, expression and peaceful assembly and lead to discrimination. It will affect countless people and its repercussions are poised to be nothing short of catastrophic, said Marie Struthers, the group's director for Eastern Europe and Central Asia. The Russian Orthodox Church spokesman praised the ruling, telling the state-run RIA Novosti Novosti News Agency that it was a form of moral self-defense by society from efforts to push the Christian idea of marriage and family from the public and legal realms. The Justice Ministry has not commented. Before the ruling, leading Russian human rights groups filled a document with the court that called the lawsuit anti-lawful discriminatory and a violation of the Constitution and international human rights treaties that Moscow has signed. Some LGBTQ plus activists said they tried to become a party to the lawsuit, but were rebuffed by the court. We tried to find some legal logic in the absurdity, said Igor Kochetov, a human rights advocate and founder of the Russian LGBT Network Rights Group. We tried to appeal to the Supreme Court's common sense and say, look, here I am, person who's been involved in LGBTQ activism for years, who's been promoting these ideas, ideas of defending human rights, mind you, and the lawsuit concerns me, he told the AP. They don't want any trial, Kochetov added. They don't want to address this matter. This is a political order and they are not, they are following it. It is the end of the kind of justice, it is the end of any kind of justice in Russia by and at large. In 2013, the Kremlin adopted the first legislation restricting LGBTQ plus rights, known as gay propaganda law, banning any public endorsement of non-traditional sexual relations among minors. In 2020, constitutional reforms pushed through by Putin to extend his rule by two more terms, also included a provision to outlaw same-sex marriage. After sending troops to Ukraine in 2022, the Kremlin ramped up a campaign against what is called the West's degrading influence and in what rights advocates saw as an attempt to legitimize the war. The same year, the authorities adopted a law banning propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations among adults also effectively outlawing any public endorsement of the LGBTQ people. Another law passed this year prohibited gender transitioning procedures and gender affirming care for transgender people. The legislation prohibited any medical interventions aimed at changing the sex of a person, as well as changing one's gender in official documents and public records. It also amended Russia's family code by listing gender change as a reason to annul a marriage and adding those who had changed gender to a list of people who can become foster or adoptive parents um so it goes on a little bit um further this is uh, this is so concerning Ily, I'm like not as surprised but the just the thought that this could happen anywhere today is is very frightening
0: yeah it's really I, I also you know even if you're not surprised by something like we say it a lot it's still up, upsetting and shocking to hear because this is just gonna lead to more violence more you know people see things like this and they think that they then have the right to do things like attack people you know openly discriminate against them kick kids out of their homes like it's nothing good comes of it at all it's just hateful and ignorant and you know I I think especially I feel especially sad for like, if you're a child or something like that, or a young person who can't just up and leave, you know, like you're just, you're stuck in whatever situation you're stuck in, you know, these types of things just drive up like rates of suicide and despair and stuff like that. So it's, um, it's just another in a long line of trends of, I think, you know, reversing a lot of progress, like, in society as far as, you know, being more open and accepting of the fact that, you know, there have always been people of different gender expression, different sexual orientations, none of that is new or a result of any type of new influence. That emphasis on there's only one way to be is what's new as far as, like, human history or human culture. Um so yeah it's very sad news to see you know russia going backwards in this way and and i'm hoping that activists are able to push back somehow against this but for the supreme court to say that it's not looking too good at the moment
1: yeah and just 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 be mindful people that this could literally happen here at any moment don't think for one second Mm. because this is in russia this is not coming for us as we can see they've been coming for us all in this country so you know um yeah just something to be mindful of shit like this is passing it's actually happening in this world so be careful be safe out there
0: yeah i mean you're you're absolutely right i mean we already are seeing things like you know a big rise in like homophobic like hate crimes and anti-trans legislation being passed and we talked a few weeks ago about the new speaker of the house like in our government who is a complete and total like religious zealot he thinks everybody is supposed to be you know his religion his lifestyle and everything else is evil and like we have people like that in our government right now so you know it's Russia it's just another and a long trend of this movement of trying to shift things backwards in time and move things further to the right and in my opinion it's it's about like there's a lot of um real problems (laughs) that exist in the world that have nothing to do with what the next person is doing in their romantic or sexual life like we have real issues with climate with health care with cost of living you know people living under horrible conditions and this is the type of thing that your politicians are spending their time and energy on you know it's I don't want to say a dis- it's a distraction because I don't want to make light of the weight of these types of things happening, but I do think, you know, it's like, oh, look, we're doing something, and then what they're doing is doing absolutely nothing to improve your quality of life or to make you safer. It's just making people feel like they have someone to look down on or to treat badly, like that's going to make them feel better about where they are at in life you know so very it's scary very depressing and you know i'm i just hope that this global tide of moving to the right is going to turn the other way soon but i don't know it's like dominoes falling it's like one after another like every week it's another right wing wing dingbat that's one another election on this type of a platform and it's just bad. I don't know what else to say.
1: You can give us some good news that might be helpful in this moment.
0: Oh, that was a really great transition Reese. Yeah, thanks. Thank
1: you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's getting this was getting dark. So, it's
0: very Ooh, real help. dark. Um <laughs> But yes, I do have a brief good news story. It's another local story. This is from The Gothamist, um, and it was written by Catalina Ganella. A judge on Thursday, uh, so Thursday of last week, um, November the 30th, Upheld New York City's new minimum wage for delivery workers in the latest defeat of Uber's relentless legal challenging challenges to the rule. Under the new minimum pay law, tech companies must pay delivery workers in the city at least $17.96 per hour plus tips, with another increase to at least $19.96 an hour by 2025. Before the new minimum wage, delivery workers were making about $11.12 with tips and as little as $4.03 an hour without tips, according to a report by the city. $4 an hour without tips. Imagine that. And it's a lot of people who don't tip or who barely tip. You know who you are? Cut that out. (laughs) If you got it, pay up. The regulations were first announced by Mayor Adams in June, initially to go into effect by July 12th, but just days before it was set to go into effect, Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Grubhub filed lawsuits against the city seeking a temporary restraining order from the state Supreme Court in Manhattan to stop the plan. Appeals Judge Nicholas Moyne paused the change while he deliberated. On September twenty-eighth, he ruled against the delivery giants, allowing the wage increase to go through. Uber immediately tried to appeal to the appellate division of the Supreme Court, the next highest court, again blocking the minimum wage from taking effect. On Wednesday, Judge Lynette M. Rosado denied that request, upholding the lower court's decision without explanation. It is unclear when the new minimum wage will take effect. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander said the ruling was a monumental win for the workers. As essential workers with grueling conditions, they deserve a pay standard that is not dictated by the whims of app companies or by how many food orders they can achieve in an hour, Landers said. These workers deserve secure pay that allows them to put food on their own tables while delivering food to our doors. Gustavo Ache with Los De- Deliveristas Unidos, the delivery worker collective that has been fighting for better wages for years, said the group was happy with the decision but hesitant to celebrate until they see the law implemented. It's a really good day for us today, Ache said. It's really good. It's another step. But we're not going to say we won, we got this. We want to see the money in all the delivery workers' pockets. It's not, it's something that we're waiting for for months now, but today is another step forward in our fight. So yeah, I was happy to see that. I mean, it's a story that we've been following for a while. uh, And there were these hiccups with, you know, it being blocked, but I'm glad to see that, you know, we're seeing some progress in the right direction. And hopefully it'll come, you know, they'll actually see the increase and the increases will continue
1: yeah exactly um it just goes to show that these days you got to keep at them man you can't like you know activism the one thing about it, is that even a word activism that's what i meant to say um you know it takes a lot of energy a lot of effort a lot of dedication but eventually things happen you know so um definitely it's important for us to stay firm behind the things we believe in but it's good to know that you know things like that um are shifting for people because this is a part of our everyday lives this is the way we live our lives today so you know we need to consider these things more often than not so keep pushing keep pushing
0: yeah so whatever your job is whatever work you do you deserve to get enough money so that you can live off of it um so that i'll tell, eleven dollars four dollars and that like what is that especially in new york city who's living off of that nobody
1: exactly you know it's
0: ridiculous and that is a grueling job like being out in all kinds of weather and you're navigating traffic and all of this like it's it's, something's got to give absolutely all right so we've done a show thank you again for listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn uh please stay tuned for more uh, community-based brooklyn-based radio and for our last song, um, this is a song that it spawned the stage name for Lady Gaga. Uh, this is a song by Queen, uh, whose lead singer Freddie Mercury died uh, or a little over 32 years ago. He passed away on November 24th, 1991. And this song is Radio Gaga. It's a love letter to the power of radio. So, you know, a fitting track for us to end on. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.
1: Bye.
2: No!